Be seated. And if you would please turn back in your Bibles, the church Bibles, to page 958, page 958, that's 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verses 23 to chapter 11, verse 1, which is really um, still part of chapter 10, uh, really. There are some search prizes. There's one for um, Joshua, and so do, uh, Joshua can come and grab me um, afterwards. Well, it might not surprise you that the title of the sermon this morning has something to do with verse 31, live to the glory of God. And we read there in verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And Paul is summing up, in a way, all that he's been saying or or the main message that he's been giving in chapters 8, 9 and 10. Uh, and of course, he's expanding on it as well. He's going beyond the lessons on food, uh, on, on meat offered to idols. And he says, whatever you do in all areas, not just in the area that I've been dealing with, but in all areas of your life, live to the glory of God. Live your life so that what you are and what you do honors God. Live your life in such a way that people watching your life and hearing your words praise God and give glory to God. This is what Paul has been teaching the Corinthians, particularly, as we say, in relation to food or meat offered to idols. So how has Paul shown the Corinthian church that they are to live for the glory of God when it comes to meat offered to idols? Well, in chapter Um, Eight, you might remember he taught them uh, that they can live to the glory of God by loving their brother and their sister, especially when it comes to their conscience. Out of love, they should never want to eat food at the idol's temple just in case it destroys their brother or sister. And if we want to live for the glory of God, we must make loving others a greater priority than pleasing ourselves. That's the point. And and Paul picks up that point again, really, in verses 23 here in our passage. He says, all things are lawful. He's picking up what some in the Corinthian church have been saying, uh, and they've been using that as a kind of excuse to do what they want. I'm free to do what I want. But Paul says... Yes, Christ has brought you into great freedom, but love must still guide your choices. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's love. Love does no harm to your neighbor, says Romans 13. And so Paul says, yeah, things might be lawful, They might be okay to do in one area, but they might not be helpful in another. They might not build up, verse 23. So for example, truth, truth is good. Truth is beautiful. It's a good thing. And yet, we can take truth, that legal lawful thing, and we can use it to build up, but we can also use it to crush. (laughs) We can do that with truth. 
Truth can be spoken in a selfish way at the wrong time to the destruction of someone. And so love must guide us in every area. If we are wanting to live for the glory of God, then we must include loving others if we're to seek living for the glory of God. So that's, that's how Paul is kind of teaching in chapter 8 in regards to the glory of God. How does he do that in chapter 9? Well, in chapter 9, he, he, he says to the people that they need to honour their union with Christ. That's how they will bring glory to God in their life. Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 9, aren't you one with Christ? Don't you show it by participating at the communion table? You drink the cup, you eat the bread, you worship God and you declare your union with Jesus. How then can you go and eat and drink at the idol's temple and participate in that table, publicly expressing a union with demons? It can't be. If we are going to live for the glory of God, we will have to have a deep awareness of our union with Jesus Christ and not get drawn into behaviors and activities which call our union with him into question. Activities that seemingly and publicly declare a union that is ungodly. A union with idols in our world. And of course the demons that are behind them. So for a moment, just see your life as a life of two options, if you can. One option, living for the glory of God, or living to do as you want. There's your two options. Each option will take you on a very different path in life. I don't know how many of you have maybe watched um, a series of Race Around the World race around the world where I think you've got five pairs, five couples who are given the task of going a long, long way uh, across land and sea, only using a, a small amount of money, and they've got to make it to maybe five or six destinations, and they've got to beat the other teams in a way. But their, their, their pathway is taken through some of the most beautiful landscapes that our world has to offer. And they can have two approaches. And, and you see these two approaches on different um, legs of, of, of this event. Some will say, we've got to win. We need to get there. And others will say, what an experience. This is once in a lifetime. Let's sightsee. Let's enjoy it. It doesn't matter if we come last. Let's take in the scenery. One is full of night trains and cramped conditions and anxiety. The other is full of panoramas and waterfalls, mocking out pigs, full of joy. As they journey, the sightseers' hearts expand. And as they journey, the must-winners, their hearts kind of shrink. The same thing happens with us. When we live for the glory of God, our hearts expand 
and we see spiritual panoramas and views that can blow our minds. When we live for what we want, our hearts shrink. And life is like a journey in a night bus. Live for the glory of God in all areas of your life. Live for the good of your neighbor. Live for union with Christ. And you will truly live. That's the point that Paul is making. And thirdly, Paul says to Corinthians, if you are going to live for the glory of God, do it by imitating me. What a staggering thing for Paul to be able to say. That totally challenges me and undoes me. Can I stand here and say, imitate me? And the answer is no, I can't in areas. I wouldn't say to you, imitate me in that area. But here is Paul. And he has given very difficult teaching over verses 8, 9, and 10. And yet at the end of it, he can say to them, imitate me. Wow. Of course, he's saying, imitate me. Don't have your eyes on me because I am imitating Christ. We're all aiming for the same imitation. Christ. And if I can help you do that, he's saying, then imitate me as I imitate Christ. And remember, Jesus Christ laying down his life isn't only God's offer of forgiveness to you and to me. It is the only model of discipleship that we truly have. Paul isn't simply receiving forgiveness from Jesus. He is wanting to imitate him. He's his role model. And so Jesus, on his last night before he goes to the cross... He will say to the Father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. I have sought your glory, my Father. I have honored my union with you. I have loved those around me. I have sought their good all the way through my life, even to the cross. I have laid it down that my church might imitate me. What an example. So pray for us. Pray for one another. Pray for the preachers here at the church. Pray that they would be good examples. Pray for the teachers in the church. Pray for the leaders. If you lead in a group, pray for others. This is a call to us all. Pray for parents. We've got a parenting Seminar going on this Saturday. How they need to be an example. A, a, a true one. One that can be followed. And let us thank God for the examples amongst us where we can imitate. Where we see Christ-like behavior. Use those people. Imitate them that you might imitate Christ. And may it all be to the glory of God. 
Now, Paul hasn't finished his teaching on meat offered to idols uh, in this last section. Uh, There are three everyday locations that Paul is wanting to deal with when it comes to meat offered to idols. And he's dealt with one in in a big way, and that is the everyday location of the the temples of of the pagans, where the idols are worshipped. But now he wants to deal with two other everyday items, much briefer. One is the, the meat market, where every Christian must go if they're going to buy meat. And he wants to deal with the home, especially the home uh, where uh, you might go and visit a, a non-Christian, someone who is an unbeliever in their home. So those, he wants to deal with those as well. Pa- Paul doesn't want the, the Corinthians misapplying principles about the temple to the marketplace or to the home. And so he gives some teaching on those locations also. So let's think about the, the, the meat market, which we find in verse 25. That's where he talks about the meat market. And uh, in one way, you, you, you could, if you've been down to Coventry Market, you'll get a, a little bit of a, a glimpse and an idea of what the, the meat market and the market might have been like. Stalls all over the place, uh, you know, um, where you could go in and you could buy all sorts of things. Down in the center of the city of Corinth, And there would have been meat stalls there. And a significant percentage of the meat at those meat stalls would have been offered to idols. We don't know the percentage exactly. It could be very high. It could be medium. There is a possibility it's on the low side, but probably it's it's up high. Now... If you were a Jew, regardless of whether you were a Christian, if you were a Jew living in Corinth or any other pagan city, you knew that you were instructed in your faith to ask questions about the food. You had to ask questions until you were satisfied that it had not been offered to idols or that it had not been prepared by a pagan priest. And there would have been Jews who were now Christians in the church. Paul knows the Corinthians, the church, they do take things to extremes sometimes. We'll see that when we come to the spiritual gifts in Corinthians 14. He also knows that they go beyond what he teaches sometimes in their application. So you might remember back in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, he said to them, he had to correct them a bit. He said, I did tell you not to mix with those who were sexually immoral, But I did not mean those outside the church (laughs) because they were taking their behavior outside. They they were applying it outside the church rather than just inside the church. And so Paul doesn't want them kind of misapplying. And so he wants to speak into these two particular areas of the meat market and a non-Christian's home. And so he says very clearly about the idle food at the market Buy it, eat it, and don't ask questions. Now, why can Paul say that? Why can Paul say that? Well, one reason that he can say it is because there is a change of location for the meat. There's been a change of context. The meat is no longer at the temple. It's at the market. If this meat was still at the the temple, Paul would say, don't eat it. 
but now it's at the market, and so he says, buy it and eat it. I mean, I suppose if you could just imagine with me um, bringing in modern technology to, to monitor a piece of meat that had been offered to idols, and there it was up at the temple, and on the screen it's marked as red. You cannot eat. If you eat that meat now, everyone will understand it as an act of worship and you will be denying your union with Christ. So don't eat it. The, med, the, the meat is red. It's off limits. But then that same meat leaves the temple on a cart and makes its way down to the market. And the stall owner at the market takes it out and he puts it out for sale at his market counter. And your computer turns it green. You can eat it now. The same piece of meat you couldn't eat at the temple, you now can buy it and eat it at the market, uh, buy it at the market and take it home and eat it in your home. That's what Paul is saying in verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the grounds of conscience. So we see that location matters. Context matters at times. As one guy says about this, he says, venue, not menu, matters. As we seek to live for God's glory, there will be many times where it won't be a matter of what we do, but where we do it. It won't always be a matter of what we do, but where we do it, and we will need wisdom. Let me try and give you one example without trying to be getting into too much details or trying to impose thoughts on you. But let's just take dancing. Dancing is good. Okay, dancing is good. We're going to see that meat is a gift from God and, and dancing is a gift. But can a change of location determine whether it is acceptable or not? Can a change of context, the lyrics or the pulse, change whether it is acceptable or not? If I dance to innocent lyrics, is that acceptable? If the lyrics become explicit and ungodly, what happens then? Does that change things? And when I dance to explicit lyrics... What am I saying about my union with Jesus Christ? What union am I expressing? And how are people understanding it? We're going to see when we get to the issue of the home, it's important how people perceive what you're doing and why you're doing it. So it isn't just whether our behavior would make a Christian potentially stumble, but whether it would prevent a non-believer from ever coming to Christ. We're going to see that that is an important point that Paul wants to make. He doesn't want to offend a Jew. He doesn't want to offend those in the church. And he doesn't want to offend the pagan, the unbeliever either. He wants them all to be saved, as we see in verse 33. But we'll come to that 
shortly. But if we aim to glorify God in all we do, we will need to consider these type of situations. If we're serious about bringing glory to God. Why else can Paul say to the Corinthians, buy and eat at the market? Well, he can say it because God is the creator and giver of the meat, of the food. So that's why he can say it. Look at verse 26. For, do you notice that there? For, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So Paul is giving the reason now, the explicit reason why he has said they can eat food in the market. And he's saying, now that it's been removed from the temple, you need to understand that the food has a, has a source, has a giver. And that giver is the creator God. It came from God. He made it and he is the one who has given it. So eat it. The Corinthians are to look beyond the past misuse of the meat to the source of the meat. God is the source and they are to look to him and to the purpose for the meat, which is a gift of God, of food to them. So Paul is saying there are two great realities that the past misuse, uh, there are two greater realities than the past misuse of the meat and that is God the creator of the meat and God the giver of the meat they are greater realities in this situation and now that the meat has been removed from the temple fix your eyes on these greater realities and when you do you will be able to thank God for it verse 26 you see, it's a verse, Paul is quoting Psalm 24, verse 1, in verse 26. And that was a, a, a prayer of thanksgiving that the Jews at Israel, that the early Christians prayed over their food. They recognized that God had been the giver of the food, and they thanked God for it. And he says, you can do it in the same way. Get your eyes on God, the giver of the good gift, and you will be able to thank God for it. Now, I'd like to suggest, as a way of application, that what is true for idol meat is more true for people. What is true for idol meat is more true for people. There is a sense in which God has redeemed this idol meat. He restores it to a good use. He brings it back in line with the purpose that he made it for, to be food, to be eaten with thankfulness. Now, of course, animals are beautiful. <laughs> they have an aesthetic purpose in our world. They, they fill our world with joy on many levels. But they are given as food. That is a biblical understanding of meat. And this idol meat has been redeemed. It can be used as intended. If God does this for meat given to idols, how much more does he restore misused people? Maybe you are here this morning and you've been misused. You've experienced things 
You shouldn't. If you are a woman and you'd like to speak to someone about that, you can speak to a woman of the church. If you're a man and you would like to, speak to one of the men of the church. But you need to know God can redeem you. He can restore you. He can cause you to live in the purpose for which he made you. He is your creator. That has never been changed. You are made in his image. That has never changed. That is value beyond your imagination. And being made in his image, he has made you to know him. And he being your creator, he has given you a purpose. And your purpose is to enjoy him and glorify him forever. And these two realities are greater than anything you have been through. Though I may not be able to understand that. And though there might be great pain beyond whatever could be expressed... And if you trust in God, he will ensure that these great purposes happen in your life. And if you are trusting in him, he is redeeming you and he will bring those purposes to completion in your life. How do we play a part in that? Well, I don't know all the answers but I would like to make a suggestion prompted by this passage. As God deals with the pain of misuse, you keep your eyes on your creator, not on your past. You fix your eyes on his purpose, not on your brokenness. Notice Paul instructs the Corinthians not to ask questions about the meat's past misuse. Don't do that, he says. Don't try to dig up the past. Set your eyes on the one who made the meat. Look further back than the misuse. Let his character and intentions reassure you. I believe an aspect of restoration for broken lives is found not in examining the past misuse in great detail, but in looking further back to God's loving purposes in creating us for him. Taking a fresh look at his loving purposes towards us in giving us life so that we might know him, that we might enjoy him, that we might glorify him. And then looking to the present and taking in with amazement the privilege that is ours, that he is working out his eternal purposes in us now. All because of Christ. All because of what he has done. It is in Christ that any one of us can be restored. And then we can also look to the future and take in the grace and the kindness of God in preparing to lavish his kindness on us in Christ forever as we live in union with him. So some Corinthians Some Corinthian Christians here might have been in danger of missing out on times of joy and thanksgiving because they were too focused on the past misuse of the meat. I think think the same thing can possibly happen to us. So that's the meat market. 
Let's think about the unbeliever's home. The unbeliever's home. That's, Paul deals with that in verse 27 and verse 28. And in verse 27 and 28, Paul is giving them an imaginary situation. But a very possible one. He's saying, one of you is invited to a non-believer's house and you decide to go. Isn't it great that the believer is invited to a non-believer's house? Uh, They must be doing something right. There must be some warmth coming out from them. And and, and they're invited to the the non-believer's house. And Paul gives the same advice to them that he gives in the marketplace. Eat whatever is put before you and don't ask questions. And Paul underlines this freedom to eat what is put before them. Uh, Look at verse 29, the second part of it. And verse 30, he says, for why should my liberty... Anyway, right now, Paul is breaking into his own kind of personal testimony here. He's stepping out of the illustration to a certain degree. And he's saying, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Paul is saying, this is my style of life. I eat what is put before me and I do it with thankfulness. If you read Timothy... Uh, you'll see that he says this even more explicitly. He says there's, there's, there's no kind of stumbling block for the Christian in terms of the location or the food or, or, or within the Christian themselves. They can eat. But then suddenly in verse 28, they can't eat. There is a problem. And it's because someone speaks up. And they say that this food, this thing has been offered in sacrifice. And Paul says, when that happens, you don't eat. And we're getting back to a similar kind of principle as we saw in chapter 8 when he was dealing with Christians. But here, I think he's dealing with non-Christians. And he's underlining how important it is to have the same concern for non-Christians as you might have for your brother and your sister in not causing them to stumble. And so the person that speaks up is probably a non-believer at at, at, at the meal. You've got the choice between the host and maybe someone else that's been invited. I'm going to go for someone else that's been invited. Uh, Certainly, it it is almost certainly a pagan, a a non-believer, because the Greek word used for the thing um, offered in sacrifice is a particular word that really would have only been used by the pagans on the whole. It was the way they described idol food. Paul has already described idol food in Greek in these passages, and he uses another phrase, much more common among the church. So he seems to be giving the picture that this is a non-believer that's, that's raising the issue. But we also need to Uh, think that probably the person that's raising it is is wanting to do the Christian a favour. They're not looking to trap the Christian. And and the reason that we might think this is because uh, in the word uh, where we're told in verse 28 that the the Christian is informed or the one who informed you, that word in Greek for informed kind of carries with it a kind of word spoken to the side. Uh, You know, it's not part of the main conversation. He's, He's tried to inform them offline almost. 
they, they, they know they're a Christian and they're wondering whether this Christian knows that this food has been offered to idols. And so they tell them. And so Paul's advice now is don't eat. You must consider the conscience even of the non-believer. <laughs> and what would you do in that situation? Who, would you offend the host <laughs> by saying, I'm sorry, I'm not going to eat. I won't eat. Or will you say, oh, it, it's, it's nothing to me. I will eat. But then you damage the conscience possibly of the non-believer because they're left now trying to work out who you are. They think that Christians shouldn't eat that. But now you just seemingly dismiss that. Who are you going to please? Well, remember, you're not looking to please either of them first. You're looking to live for the glory of God. You're wanting to please Jesus first. You're thinking through what is right before God. Paul is wanting us to understand that the unbeliever's conscience matters. It matters. Paul longs for the lost to be saved. We said that verse 33. He, he, he does what he can. He, he's, you know, uh, he says in verse 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. That is a driving force in Paul's approach. And he won't offend them needlessly. Verse 32. Give no offence to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. <clears throat> of course, we all know that Paul, he knows that he has a gospel that is offensive. He knows that when he speaks the good news of Jesus Christ, it will stink in some people's noses. And there will be some for whom it smells beautiful. He's not talking about that. He knows he's going to offend with the gospel, but he's saying, I do not want to offend with my life and my choices, my personal choices. I don't want to be a stumbling block to someone who might be coming to Jesus. And then through my behavior, they are no longer wanting to come. It matters to him. The conscience of the unbeliever. And so he says, it should to you. Don't eat. You know, if the host is a good friend, he will handle the Christian saying, no, thank you. Too many Christians have friendships with non-believers where there is no real expression of Christianity. They just want it all to go smoothly all of the time. But you're not doing your unbelieving friends a favour. They need to see Christianity lived out. They need to know your love for them, but they need to see how it impacts your life. Only then will you be used by God to draw them to Jesus Christ. So don't be afraid to make a stand when you have to. And so in whatever we do, May we live to the glory of God. And as we live to the glory of God, may our hearts expand and may we know the joy of doing that. Amen.